it was Coral. You, gasped Harry. Coral smiled. His face wasn't twitching at all. Me, he said calmly. I wondered whether I'd be meeting you here, Potter. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, your host, revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that I nearly missed, like our current binge of Harry Potter, where despite being the same age as movie Harry, I didn't read this series through until my mid-20s. That's the belated part. Now we're going back, a chapter or two at a time, digging deep into storylines, we're theorizing about what's not on the page, particularly Dumbledore's role and how his master plan is unfolding, and of course, infusing sarcasm wherever I can stuff it. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge, and today we finish our reread of the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone book. This is it. This is this is it. We're, we've made it. We're we're at the end. It's the final chapter. The man with two faces. Give yourself a pat on the back. You've made it through a kid's book. Great job. Anyways, before we get into it, this podcast is going to have spoilers. If you haven't read these by now, you're even later than I was. This podcast could also have some adult language. You can buy them in the kids section, but I didn't read them till I was a grown ass man. I got some more social media responses uh, last week for the Game of Inches question as well, which was, uh, what would happen if the trio failed on any of the obstacles protecting the stone? And I wanted to go ahead and share it here to open up uh, this week's episode. Amy on Facebook said, I think if they did get stuck on an obstacle, that Quirrell would have ran into them coming back through after being unable to crack the mirror obstacle himself, perhaps dragging Harry back through to the end anyway. Could have possibly had a Cedric moment if Hermione or Ron was still with Harry in that moment as well. My response to this was... A Cedric moment is dark, and she said, yeah, but it makes sense. Neither of them were important to Voldy either. Ouch. Also valid. That's a very possible scenario uh, that could have played out had they gotten stuck anywhere. Thank you, Amy, for that one. And if you would like your responses uh, to some of the questions, uh, whether they be the Game of Inches or anything else that I pose on social media, then... Respond, and we'll get you in here. Uh, to catch you up from last week, Harry figures out when the heist plan for the Sorcerer's Stone's going down, and they try to go to Dumbledore. Finally. And of course, Prof. McGee plays gatekeeper and tries to stop our little heroes from doing hero shit. Hermione attacks Neville, and they get through Dumbledore's obstacle course. They get past Hagrid's pet, Sprout's strangling house plant, Flitwick's flying keys, McGee's giant chess set, they stroll past an unconscious troll and get through Snape's potions riddle. And then the chapter leaves off on one of them big old cliffhangers. Harry reached the final room at the end of the funhouse and found the villain who's trying to steal the stone. And it wasn't Snape. We pick back up this week with the play-by-play. Play-by-play. So the man with two faces starts off paying off that cliffhanger. Who was in the room? If not Snape, who's trying to steal the stone? It's Quirrell. And here it comes. The moment we've 
all been waiting for. The one we knew was coming eventually. The one that always comes at the end of these hero books. Shows, movies, uh, fan fictions. Uh, if a child writes down in their diary a hero's journey, it's going to have this. Whether they're written for children, teens, adults, or for your dog, it's always there. It's the villain exposition. This is the part where the bad guy has to info dump the bad guy plan and let us know he's the bad guy. In, in Quirrell's case, that he was the real bad guy all along, not the fake bad guy. It's inevitable. This is how bad guys roll. Because, bad guy. But the Cliff Notes version is that Quirrell doesn't really have a stutter, he's not a bumbling idiot, and he's not afraid of his own shadow. And he's the one who tried to kill Harry on the Quidditch pitch. We learn that Snape was trying to protect Harry rather than kill him, and that is general. Just nature and tendencies to bully children and act like a dickhead give the perfect cover that Quirrell needed in order to work in the shadows. So, thank you. Severus. Uh, he snaps his fingers and magic ropes tie up Harry, which is a bit of wandless magic we haven't really seen yet. I say wandless because literally at no point in this final scene is wand mentioned. I, not Quirrell's, not Harry's, unless I completely missed it after looking for it deliberately. The first book of a book series about a magical boy ends with two people wrestling like muggles. And that's a fumble candidate. Coral's standing in front of the mirror of Air said he doesn't have any idea how it works, and this is this is precisely why Dumbledore wanted Harry to find the mirror in the first place, so that he could tell Harry how it works. And we're gonna talk about that a lot in a few minutes. So for now just know that Harry has a leg up on Quirrell, and his first reaction is to keep Quirrell distracted. This is just one of many examples that we see of Harry just kind of intuitively knowing what to do when the stakes are at their highest. He's not panicking, he's keeping himself calm, he's strategizing on the fly, and working himself into an advantage. He's 11. If I wasn't so obsessed with this series, I might call out that this is total bullshit and that the kids in this series were written with the emotional maturity and instincts of savvy adults. But I love these books, so I'm going to say that Harry's a badass whose natural instincts to react in the moment and stay cool under pressure is just highly impressive and perhaps quite advanced for his age, and it makes him the hero of this story. So he's keeping Quirrell talking and trying to just kind of inch himself in front of the mirror because all he wants to do is get the stone and keep it away from Quirrell and Voldemort. He knows that if he can get in front of the mirror, that's what he's going to see. And this, this realization is why it was so important for Dumbledore to make sure Harry found the mirror and tell him how it works for this particular moment. The scouting report is where we're going to dive into that a little bit deeper. I realize I've said that twice, but it's important. That's not a typo. It's not a glitch. Your podcast player did not skip and go back to earlier in the episode. It's important. <laughs> For now, we have the disembodied, high-pitched, rasping voice of Voldemort. 
Use the boy. Use the boy. While Harry's planning out his lie of what he sees in the mirror, even he didn't expect to see what he saw the way that he saw it. He thought uh, that he'd look in the mirror, see himself finding the stone so that he could learn to where it was in order to go look for it and get it. But we need shit streamlined. So what actually happened is the stone just dropped right into his pocket. And so now he's got to lie. He has to make something up. He tells Quirrell that he sees himself winning the house cup for Gryffindor and that he's, um, you know, shaking hands with Dumbledore. And he thinks he's going to sneak away with the stone. But Voldemort calls him on his bullshit. And at this point, we still have no idea where he is. Until, of course, Quirrell unwraps his turban and the source of millions upon millions of children's nightmares is revealed before us, right on the page. A parasitic Voldemort face sticking out of the back of Quirrell's head, and the Quirrell-Demort nickname finally makes all of the sense from the text. And then we get more exposition, because Quirrell isn't the real bad guy. After all, the real bad guy is Voldemort, and we can't have a bad guy without a bad guy monologue. The little mirror side chat reminiscing on uh, killing Harry's parents, which is lovely, it turns dangerous, and Quirrell is literally about to choke Harry out with his hands, not his wand. Because, like I said, no wands, apparently. And the children's book theme continues as Quirrell's hands start burning and blistering after touching Harry's skin. And Harry proceeds to do the only logical thing in this moment, aside from maybe shoving a wand up his nose. He grabs his face, burning it, <laughs> melting it, and basically flaying this dude's face alive. And in one final desperate attempt to survive, he just grabs a hold of Quirrell by the arm and just holds on until he passes out. And just before he did, he felt Quirrell's arm wrenched from his grasp before everything went dark. This is when Dumbledore stepped in. He'd seen everything he came to see, and, and then some. And when it looked like Harry had fought as long as he could, we're supposed to believe he just coincidentally showed up? No, no way. He was there the whole time. But whether you buy my theory or not tells it we do learn when he tells harry about it uh when he wakes up in the hospital wing three days later which seems like a long time but i'm no witch doctor the whole school knows that harry saved the day he has treats and gifts and a toilet seat from the twins but all harry cares about is the stone Dumbledore tells him it's been destroyed, that the Flamels are setting their affairs in order, and we get one of the Dumbledore iconic lines as he describes to Harry how, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And this is a good time to bring up that we get a ton of Harry versus Tom Riddle. Both, both orphans, similar in appearance, connected to each other by one core, and a horcrux as it turns out later on and it's 
it's a comparison that happens a ton throughout the books. We've talked about it before. This is where the overarching theme of the book series comes into play the most is this comparison that the series is about choices, not abilities, choices. But the comparison we don't get a lot of is Voldemort and Dumbledore, who might be more comparable from a magical ability standpoint to each other than Harry will ever be. He's not in their ballpark, but their choices and their perspective couldn't be more different despite similar beginnings. Dumbledore, who had an attraction to the pre-Voldemort Dark Wizard, who lusted after the Deathly Hallows to defeat death, but who completely changed his life, becoming a champion for muggles, muggleborns, non-human magical beings, and taking a stand against dark magic, and ultimately believing that love is the most powerful magic and death is but the next great adventure. That's one of our uh what do you say uh the the back of our chocolate frog card on on dumbledore on the back of tom riddles attracted to dark magic immediately revealed in his connection to a historic dark wizard as the heir of slytherin that he just completely reveled in he made conquering death his life's ambition making his first horcrux as a teenager and wants nothing more than a pure-blood wizarding society ruling over muggles and magical beings alike. He argues against Dumbledore that dark magic will always defeat love and sees death as a weakness and his greatest fear until he ultimately dies himself with a body that hits the floor. Not confetti. The parallels certainly aren't perfect, but they're still jarring. And I just thought that it was interesting. So I shared it with you. Back to the chapter. Dumbledore encourages Harry to call Voldemort by name, not you know who. Here's my question, and I'm not the first one to ask it, but why doesn't Dumbledore encourage more people to call him Tom Riddle? We see him do this when he's confronting Voldemort or Tom Riddle face-to-face -face a couple of times throughout this series, which is clearly in those moments a, a mental power play. But outside of that, he calls him Voldemort. And he encourages others to call him Voldemort. If, if it's all about saying a name and not wanting to increase the amount of fear that the thing or the person has, then wouldn't it make more sense to not only in your one-on-one -on -one moments with the person, but when talking about him and almost spreading, you know, the, um, the rising against them to call them by their given name, not the one they made up for themselves to take that power away. I don't, I don't know why this wasn't the play, but I didn't write the books. I just read them really, really late in life as a grown-ass man. Uh, we know that there ends up being a jinx on the name Voldemort later. Uh, another thing that I wondered as I was pondering to myself and writing notes to share with you, I wonder if there was also a jinx on Tom Riddle. 
and why the trio didn't fall back onto you know Tom Riddle in the tent after they found out about the jinx. They couldn't use Voldemort, so they defaulted to you-know-who, like everybody else in this world. But it would have been interesting to see what would have possibly happened if they had tried to fall back to Tom Riddle, and whether or not that would uh, bring <laughs> Snatchers and Death Eater to their door or not. Um, anyways, uh, we find out in this conversation that... Dumbledore is having with Harry. We're back in the back in the present chapter, by the way. We're bouncing around a little bit this week. No big deal. Uh, we find out in this conversation that Quirrell died after Voldemort fleed the scene, which may or may not make Harry a murderer, or perhaps it was Dumbledore, because uh, Harry passed out, remember, and there was the wrenching of the arm out of his grip, and you know that that's Dumbledore, you know, jerking him out of Harry's grasp. Uh, I'd love to know exactly what happened uh, personally because I imagine it was that fierce Dumbledore a la like Department of Mysteries and Order of Phoenix just showing his power and his uh, veracity maybe. Um, I don't know. I bet it's a. I bet it was a cool scene that we just didn't get to see while Harry was taking a nap. Uh, we also find out that Voldemort can't die, and you know that Dumbledore knows that it's Horcruxes by now, right? He does. He has to. Um, but this is, uh, you know, getting back to the conversation. This is the first conversation people normally bring up in the anti-Dumbledore crowd. He. He knows way more than he's letting on. He refuses to share with Harry why Voldemort wants to kill him, but he does tell him at least some things. He tells him about the love protection from Lily that saved him from Quirrell's touch. He tells him that he was the one that gave him the invisibility cloak and how it had, uh, how it had previously belonged to James and giving him a, a little fun little nod uh, about how James used to sneak around Hogwarts and use it to go down to the kitchens. And this is just a, it's kind of where we're reminded that Dumbledore knows what's going down in his school and he lets a lot of shit slide. Uh, and that's just one of the anti-Dumbledore coalition complaints. Uh, he also straight up lies to Harry why Snape was protecting him during the school year at all. Uh, but not without dropping a kernel of truth about James saving Snape's life. That's going to come up later. Um, and I know that Dumbledore couldn't tell him, hey, Snape is actually like double agenting. He was in love with your mom and he's vowed to keep you alive, but doesn't want anybody to know. Oops, sorry for that spoiler. He can't go that far, especially with this kid. Like, he's 11. I, I get it, but he didn't have to fabricate the debt being paid to James's memory so that Snape could go back to hating James after this school year. Like, that piece of it didn't have to be there. It just didn't. That might come up later, too. Uh, finally, he tells Harry about how the stone was protected by the mirror and how only someone who wanted to find and not use it 
could retrieve it. And this is why I say that all the obstacles that we talked about last week weren't actually about protecting the stone at all. And if that's the case, what's the point in having them? Hence my theory of the testing Harry angle. But if you want to hear that, listen to last week's episode. Ron and Hermione come in next and they just want to catch up on the gossip. We find out how it took a little bit for Hermione to wake Ron up from his chess match heroics and another another hero taking a nap. And then my Dumbledore testing theory sort of goes to shit. Uh, and this one was hard for me because um, I'd forgotten that it was written in this way until obviously rereading it for this podcast and here we go Hermione and Ron say that they ran into Dumbledore in the entrance hall who apparently already knew that Harry had gone after Quirrell in the stone how could Dumbledore be in the entrance hall and invisible following Harry taking notes on how he did on all the obstacles magic maybe I don't know. It's probably possible a body double spell or he lifted the apparition blocking spell for himself to uh, just keep up the ruse. Or my theory's just completely crackpot and I'm grasping at straws to try and make it work. Probably that. Um, and then they discuss the ethics of Dumbledore intending for Harry to face off against Quirrellmort in the first place. Anti-Dumbledore Coalition is on Hermione's side, saying that that's insane. Uh, Dumbledore truthers take Harry's side, who says that it's great that he got the chance, um, or at least was given the chance, if he could do it. Um, and then we get a visit from Hagrid, who's a mess, and gives Harry a photo album of his parents, which cues the waterworks. And now it's time for the feast in the Great Hall. Dumbledore returns the points that Hermione and Harry lost for the dragon debacle and an extra 10 points for Harry for saving the wizarding world. Another 10 for Neville for standing up to the trio and this is the tipping point that gives Gryffindor the house cup over Slytherin. If you heard me and Sarah from the first year's pod discussing this uh, a couple weeks ago now, um, you've heard me say in the way that I just described it, um, that it's uh, that I think that the number of points that Dumbledore gave in the final meal <laughs> uh, of the school year was partially about getting those dragon points back for that nonsensical chapter and that awful detention experience that they were given. But you also heard me say that it was in part another way of linking Harry and Neville, the chosen one and the not chosen one, linked from birth by a prophecy and a choice, a choice made by Voldemort, leaving one an orphan and the other with parents who will never truly recognize him again. 20 points and a house cup can never get the loss each of these children have faced back. But it's something. And Gryffindor wins the house cup. And poof, banners in the Great Hall change from green to red, just like the movie shows. Uh, and with that, we're off for the summer. 
and we've officially finished Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone. Let's get into that scouting report that I promised. Scouting report. Okay, so with the scouting report, uh, for a lot of these episodes, we focused in on a character, but I've done something a little bit different the past couple of weeks with it, and last week I liked it um, breaking down the obstacles kind of one by one and what they were testing. So this week we're going to do something kind of like that. Uh, we're essentially going to answer the question, what's up with Dumbledore in the mirror of Erised? And I'm going to just tell you, there's a theory here. Uh, for starters, I think Dumbledore spends many nights in front of the mirror. Similar to the quick scene that we get in Crimes of Grindelwald, I think he has a habit of it. Um, you can... I don't know. I, <laughs> You can try to say that he still sees Grindelwald like he does in the movie, I, I don't really believe in this, um, to be honest. Uh, you can get mad about me uh, about that if you want to with me, um, but I think it's probably the dumbest love story that gets spun in this canon. Um, I've said it before, so I won't harp on it, but spending two months together in the way that we're led to believe these two did when you're 17 years old doesn't equate to the kind of deep feelings that would cause someone who lives another... 130-ish years to continue to obsess over it. And you're not going to convince me otherwise. Uh, no. But similar to Harry, the mirror is the only way that Dumbledore can see the family that he's lost. His mother and his sister. We know that even after his own death, he still blamed himself for hers. Her, his sister, I'm talking about specifically. That's the type of thing that will haunt you for 140 years and cause you to stand in front of a mirror wasting away emotionally for hours at a time. That's what I think Dumbledore really sees in the mirror. And if he sees Grindelwald in any way, it's in connection to that. But that's just my opinion. And I think this is why Dumbledore is able to give Harry the warning of what could happen if he continues to seek out the mirror. He could wind up like Dumbledore, standing in front of it nearly every night for a century. So Dumbledore is incredibly familiar with this mirror, and how he conceals the stone within it is anybody's guess. But he would definitely have to have intimate knowledge of its magical properties. And then it hit me. Dumbledore made the mirror first, first, first as a way to feel connected to the family that he lost, particularly Ariana, and now he's magicked it to protect the stone. That would surely explain how he would know how to use and manipulate the mirror in the way that he does as a protective device. I also believe he did so as soon as he got the stone from Hagrid. It's been safely stowed away inside the mirror all along, and nobody's getting it. It's 100% safe from ending up in the wrong hands. 
He didn't need all those other protections. Those were for Harry, not the stone. As you know, that's my headcanon. I also think that he planted the mirror in the room that Harry ran into under the invisibility cloak, specifically for Harry to find it. And that's why he was there, invisible, watching the boys come and go multiple nights in a row. Dumbledore had the mirror at the end of this weird obstacle course thing that we went through last chapter. It was sitting there, and then he summoned the mirror from its hiding place with the stone inside and put it here for Harry to find it in that room under the invisibility cloak that Dumbledore left him during his wanderings, and Dumbledore monitored for not only Harry, but also the stone in the mirror's safety. And then he magicked it back to its place below the school when Harry was gone. What do you think? A little far-fetched? Maybe. But I ask you, what seems more plausible? That Dumbledore wasn't protecting the stone that he brought to Hogwarts for protection when Gringotts wasn't secure enough and that he just happened to find Harry staring at the mirror of Erised in this random empty classroom and that he just happened to know that Harry had been there the two nights prior and they just happened to know exactly what Harry and Ron both saw in the mirror and that he just happened to decide that the mirror should be moved so that Harry wouldn't get addicted to it and that he just so happened to think oh what a great way to protect the stone sure that makes more sense than it being deliberate so let's pre nah, let's pretend you subscribe to this theory uh, Dumbledore's already hidden the stone in the mirror he's simply summoning it up and back to and from this room for Harry's benefit and he's monitoring the situation invisible and you know all that's good and he can do this because not only was he there to protect the mirror the mirror was you know plenty of protection for the stone now the stone is safe Harry got to save the day Dumbledore also knows in all of this the ultimate test from the mirror he knows that Harry is a pure soul and a worthy hero. Otherwise, he couldn't get the stone from the mirror either because that's the way that Dumbledore intended it. Because after all, Dumbledore created the mirror of Erised. Let's foreshadow. Foreshadow. All right. If you've made it this far into this podcast series, you know how this works by now. The foreshadow segment where we take four things from the chapter or chapters that we read that foreshadow something to come later in the series. These are not the only four that show up. They're just the four that I wanted to talk about. So the first one this week is a quote. I'm shaking hands with Dumbledore. I've won the house cup for Gryffindor. Of course, foreshadowing later in this very chapter that we read where Gryffindor wins the House Cup thanks in large part to Harry saving the world from Voldemort returning. Oh, and Neville putting his dukes up and standing up to his friends and taking that Petrificus Totalis spell like a champ. I hope that Hermione brought him 
off the page just like a shit ton of pie and cookies and literally anything he wants and babysat trevor and just did his laundry for like a week or i guess folded it or i don't know do the house elves do all that what about the like clothes handling by the elves I don't, i'm not going down that rabbit hole uh, although that's kind of a foreshadow in it of itself um foreshadow number two quirrell couldn't touch harry this is because voldemort couldn't touch harry foreshadowing the moment in the series where he will be able to touch harry and ultimately a big part of voldemort's own demise and that gleam of triumph that we get when harry tells Dumbledore about Voldemort now being able to touch him and why and if all that seems cryptic it's because I know there's spoilers all over this thing but I'm literally trying to keep some things not just like completely spoiled <laughs> for everyone um but I guess I should make the assumption that if you're listening to this you probably know what I'm talking about anyways foreshadow Number three, the conversation with Dumbledore in the hospital wing, we get foreshadows of Snape and Harry's father, James, and the events that we're going to see in Snape's worst memory coming up in book five. We get foreshadowing of Voldemort discussions between Harry and Dumbledore and Dumbledore being selective in what information that he decides to share with Harry and when he decides to share it oftentimes to maddening results and that shit is going to continue throughout all of these books and if we're to take crimes of grindelwald and <sighs> into consideration chances are in the very last conversation that harry and dumbledore have at the uh, beyond King's Cross, Dumbledore's still doing it. And that's really tough. Anyways, the following conversation um, with Ron and Hermione is our fourth foreshadow for this week. And this is the one where they discuss whether the whole plot was Dumbledore leading Harry to this moment. And we get... Hermione, appalled, Ron, curious, and Harry, borderline proud of it. Of course, the three of them are completely right. The whole book is basically one big foreshadow of the next six years of their lives together. On the quest, a quest from Dumbledore, to take down Voldemort. For good. And that's pretty much the whole series leading us into our game of inches a game of inches so this week uh our game of inches question game of inches question <laughs> that uh, i did share on social media um i'm gonna be honest with you i didn't get any responses to the actual question lots of likes um some conversation about other things sparked um somebody told me that i looked like dan radcliffe uh in the video that i posted um, and asked me if I heard that before. Um, the answer is once or twice, 
but it didn't answer uh, the actual question of the video. So, um, no big deal. Not going to get 100% uh, success rate in the, um, in the fan participation category uh, for this week. Uh, but you're welcome to answer it after you hear this, uh, and I would be glad to lead off next week's episode uh, with any responses that I get from this week. Anyways, um, what if Voldemort wasn't on the back of Coral's head? How would Harry have defeated him? Harry survives this <laughs> wrestling match or fist fight or weird burning of the face um, thing um, because he basically fillets him alive. And it's, it's total kids' book stuff, but it's also the only thing he has. It's not quite like the movie where Harry definitely murders Quirrell, but he definitely leaves him unconscious with burns all over him, and he dies. So Harry basically still murders him. But the reason is the blood sacrifice and the Lily's protection. The one we spent just a ton of time talking about in the first chapter, way back when on um, uh, Head Wizard on the Cobble Street episode. This is... Harry's mom sacrificing herself to try and protect Harry from Voldemort. It causes the Vaticadabra killing curse to rebound off of Harry as a baby and go back into Voldemort and send him into his you know, mystical, almost spirit-ish form. Um, because, you know, there's Horcruxes tethering him to life. Um, Harry's just a baby, but the protection is alive and well um the same protection that causes Voldemort excruciating pain if he were to physically touch Harry himself and because Voldemort is latched onto Quirrell this is what happens to Quirrell the giveaway here is that Quirrell can touch Harry just fine when it's just him Back in our Diagon Alley chapter, uh, that would be the school shopping episode, if you want to go back to that one. This is before Voldemort's latched on for the ride, and before he has the turban on his head, he shakes Harry's hand. Just fine. And no barbecue. This is luck for Harry, really. He's losing in this altercation until he starts burning him alive with his bare hands. If Voldemort isn't there, this doesn't happen. How does Harry survive and defeat Quirrell? I have a couple of possibilities here, but I don't know. Um, maybe Dumbledore reveals himself sooner and saves the day. Because, again, I make the assumption that um, he's there the whole time, despite what the chapter tries to tell me to bunk my theory um that he's there taking notes and is watching the whole time so maybe he steps in sooner uh that's a possibility or i mean in all these cases the writer could just like write things slightly differently obviously to get to the same end but it's fun to theorize anyways um maybe Quirrell doesn't even get this far on his own without Voldemort in the back of his head maybe he you know uh can't even get past the 
three-headed dog. It's probably Voldemort who's feeding him the dragon egg idea uh, with Hagrid to try to booze you know, uh, information out of him. Because that seems like something that would be straight out of Voldemort's playbook, particularly as Tom Riddle, who we find out later in the series, is incredibly uh, charismatic and good at manipulating people. Don't really get that vibe from Quirrell. Not that we get a true sense of him throughout the book because he's faking the stutter the whole time, but yeah, anyways, that tangent aside, um, maybe he's just incapable on his own, and we don't even get this altercation. Uh, maybe Harry's able to outsmart him and sneak away with the stone, because after all, it was Voldemort who recognized that Harry was lying about what he saw in the mirror. It was Voldemort who suggested that Quirrell use Harry to try to figure out how to work the stone. Uh, it wasn't Quirrell, and Harry had contemplated trying to make a break for it, and he didn't get very far. If it was just Quirrell, maybe he's able to get away. I don't know. This, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but um, the more I think about it, that might be my favorite scenario. So uh, let's let's do this. Imagine Harry is just, he takes off running, and it turns into some kind of chase scene back through all of the obstacles backwards. Uh, maybe the troll woke up pissed about, you know, having a big old lump on his head. Um, and at some point, Harry's got to run into Ron and Hermione in the chess room, and they start dodging pieces and maybe using them as blockers while, you know, Coral finally pulls out his wand and starts firing curses off. I don't know, maybe they get to the key room and they jump on uh, jump on brooms and off they go. Um, flying getaway, uh, back up the track door, speeding past a wide awake Fluffy trying to bark and chew their faces off. Um, I don't know. Um, but I think it'd be cool. That would be the kind of action scene I would be down for. Even if it is just for action's sake. You know, not like burning down the burrow. Anyways, let's do some awards before we get out of here. And we're going to start with the game ball. The game ball. So this week, the game ball is obvious. If you've forgotten or you're new here, the game ball is an award that we give away. That's completely meaningless, but we give it to our standout character in the chapter. And for me this week, it's Harry. Uh, he's the hero. He holds his ground one-on-one -on -one with Coral, particularly for an 11-year-old child. He does really well. Um, he thinks on his feet to keep Coral talking and not give him a chance to try to figure out how to get the stone out of the mirror. Um, he kept his shit together, uh, considering he was up against a grown-ass man with a parasitic Baldi baby sticking out of the back of his head. Um, the, it's, And we can't forget that this albeit parasitic Valdi baby version, this is still the same person responsible for killing Harry's parents and causing him to grow up without knowing the love of a parent, having to live with the Dursleys who hate him. And until the end of this book, he doesn't even, didn't even know what they looked like um, aside from, you know, seeing them for the first time in the mirror of Erised. Um, you know, and this guy's right in front of him growing out of the back of another person's head this is straight up horror movie shit and 
Harry stands his ground. He saves the day. He commits a murder, basically. And he still has empathy to spare for Nicholas Flamel and courage to save Voldemort's name and basically tell Hagrid, like, I've fought him and I'm going to keep fighting him even if it kills me. Uh, oh, and also, Gryffindor won the House Cup largely for Harry's heroics, but Neville kind of tipped that scale. So, attaboy Neville, but... Uh, game ball is it's Harry's this week, and that leads us to our red card. Red card. So the red card, as you probably know by now, is the opposite of the game ball. This is the character that sucked so bad we wish we could throw him out of the book. And of course, this week it's Quirrell for going in search of Voldemort in the first place, for deciding to join him when he got there, for trying to steal the stone from Gringotts, and for letting Voldemort under the back of his head, for endangering students, for trying to murder Harry multiple times throughout the book, which we're just now learning were him, so they qualify in this particular uh, red card segment, and for giving some of the dumbest plot points throughout the entire book in for me, that's just a bonus violation. Let's do the fumble. Fumble. So the fumble, this is where I believe that the story drops the ball in some way. Uh, the first thing that I have is that Coral says on Halloween, he let the troll in to come scout out what was protecting the stone. But he was one of the teachers protecting the stone with a troll by the way. Shouldn't he have already known? Are we meant to believe that the professors taking part in the stone's protection don't actually know what the other professors are contributing to the protection? <laughs> Wouldn't they see it when they were doing the protecting? Like they're placing their own protections. Am I stupid or does this not make any sense whatsoever? No matter how many times I say the word protection, I just don't get it. Uh, the second thing, uh, for me is the lack of wand work in the final scene. It just baffles me as, as the series goes on, we see very little wandless magic and wands are a huge, huge role in this series. The twin cores, the elder wand, wands matter unless you're quarrel, I guess. I'm going to chalk this up to the author not deciding how key the wand is in the equation yet, but either way, it's weird, right? I don't know. Give me your thoughts. Give me your award ideas. Um, give me your reward uh, award ideas for the entire book. Um, yeah. Anyway. With that, we've reached the end of another episode of the Belated Binge Podcast, and we have officially wrapped up our first book of the series. So what now? <laughs> um, so here's what I'm thinking. Next week, we're going to have our first episode, and I'm excited about this. We're going to do the bingies, and I got to give... Amanda from the Fox and the Foxhound credit for the name, but it was perfect and I'm taking it. Next week, we're going to recap the book from a, 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 a thousand or so foot view. Um, what I liked, what I didn't, some highlights from our discussion along the way, and I want to give away our 
awards for the book as a whole. I'm going to tally up who got the most game balls and red cards. Um, there's some other awards that uh, are going to come into play. I found a really cool. Um, I, I found a really cool idea on Instagram uh, that I'll tell you a little bit more about in that episode. But um, I'm you know planning it out and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun and it could have some cool potential for engagement down the road i hope um but all in all just gonna have some fun looking back on this you know first season of the podcast and uh and at least a little bit of what's uh what's ahead you know first season two uh, i'm probably gonna take a couple weeks off before we jump into season two uh there are some updates to like show format and patreon benefits that i want to do and uh, my ultimate goal for the podcast in next season is to is to try to make it more interactive uh, and more engaging with you. So uh, with that in mind, I do want to hear what you would do as far as binges go. Who would be, you know, the best character from the book? Who deserves, you know, the ultimate game ball? Who was the worst character in the book and should get tossed out and we wish they never came back? Um guess you could use quarrel because that literally happens but keep in mind that this is for book one only no credit or blame for what's to come later um, you can share your bingey picks by leaving a voicemail on the website belatedbinge.com just tell me your name and who you think should you know get the awards and why and um you know on that note i'm also i'm also interested in your just general thoughts on the first book um the first season of the podcast um just what do you think so um if you prefer to do it in written form and not have your voice played on the show, that's fine. Uh, you can submit your responses on the contact form on the website. Uh, you can email belatedbinge at gmail, or you can use social media at belatedbinge across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I've got TikTok now, and I'm still kind of figuring out how to use it, but I have it, which is yay me. Um... Uh, as a reminder, uh, if you're not looking at your uh, phone or whatever device you're listening on, uh, the way to spell Belated Binge across any of those platforms, whether it be the website or um, the email or on social media, is B-E-L-A-T-E-D-B-I-N-G-E. Got it? Cool. As always, shout out to producer Jack, who works like a dog, and I hope to get your responses to contribute to next week's episode as we wrap up season one with the first ever binges. And if you're picturing Michael Scott, Dwight, and a drunk-ass Pam falling down and kissing Jim, that's exactly what you should be thinking. Uh, I'll see you next week on the Belated Binge Podcast. I hope you have er, a good holiday, said Hermione, looking uncertainly after Uncle Vernon, shocked that anyone could be so unpleasant. Oh, I will, said Harry, and they were surprised at the grin that was spreading over his face. They don't know we're not allowed to use magic at home. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. <laughs>